Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the director of Netflix's new teen horror anthology movie series, Fear Street, on the mammoth task of making three movies back to back. Mark Ryle reviews the Oscar winning Another Round and Michelle Pfeiffer in French Exit. Plus, businesswoman and broadcaster Nora Casey on her favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on Newstalk. Apart from this weekend when it's on the radio at 9pm. So a good weekend to you all and I hope you're doing well, whether you're listening on podcast or on the radio at 9 after all that Lions business. Now, in movie news, for people of a certain disposition and of a TV disposition as well, this is the most exciting trailer in a long time. When I was a kid, guys like me were brought up to follow codes. I wonder if I can talk to you alone for a moment, Mrs. Soprano? On the basis of the Sanford Binet, he's high IQ. You can't prove it by me. He's got a D-plus average. Well, he doesn't apply himself, but he is smart. The results tell us. He's a leader. Ankle dick. Growing up with the family... ...takes a toll. Yes, that is a clip from the Many Saints of Newark, the prequel story of The Sopranos, which has The Sopranos guys involved. David Chase wrote it. It's directed by Alan Taylor, who did a lot of the series. It looks like proper Sopranos when you see the trailer. Uh, They're in the pork shop. Uh, You know, I don't want to go on about it because we talk about The Sopranos a lot. The trailer looks great. Trailers are trailers, you know, two and a half minutes. I've seen great trailers that have resulted in terrible movies. But it is The Sopranos, and David Chase wrote the script. So uh, let's hope. It's not here until the 22nd of October. So we've lots of time to talk about it between now and then. Now in TV, I was watching this. Jeffrey Epstein had an international sex trafficking scheme. Ghislaine Maxwell, this moneyed social girl. She was the one who would satisfy his every whip. Ghislaine Maxwell's charged with enticement of minors, sex trafficking of children, and perjury. Epstein's girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, helped connect him to the wealthy and famous. She gave him a veneer of respectability. She always struck me as very confident, full of life. But she's obviously a good actress because there was this whole other world going on. Yes, now that's a clip from Epstein's shadow, Ghislaine Maxwell. It was on Sky Documentaries and also it's on Now TV and all three of them are there now to stream or download. Ghislaine Maxwell, as you may know, is the former partner, girlfriend of the disgraced and paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein who uh, committed suicide in prison a few years ago. Now, there was a documentary all about Epstein on Netflix. I think it was last year. Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, which told all about that horrific case. This is all about Ghislaine Maxwell and what she knew and didn't know. And there's testimonies of Epstein's victims who claim categorically 
that she was involved uh, in all sorts of ways and was in essence a madame uh, securing young women for Epstein. So it's horrible stuff in that way. And she's currently, as you may know, in a jail in Brooklyn awaiting trial for later in the year. And this looks at how involved she was, but I suppose the most interesting piece about it, especially if you've watched Epstein documentary on Netflix already, is her upbringing and Robert Maxwell being her father. Robert Maxwell was this press baron, this media mogul, this businessman who was cartoonishly crooked. Uh, He robbed pension funds. He ended up dying in strange circumstances off a boat off the Canary Islands. And he was a pretty torturous father to his nine children and doted, it seemed, on Ghislaine when she was a child. But she grew up with a really strange relationship with her father, moneyed, and then her father died. And, and this documentary makes the claim that, and I don't think it's apologising for it, but that she went from one horrible man to another in the form of Jeffrey Epstein. So it's not a bad piece of TV. Thankfully, lots of the victims and survivors are interviewed as well. I suppose, like a lot of these documentaries, it it makes the same point regularly. Like, it's three parts. They're all nearly an hour. And you feel it could be one hour documentary, maybe an hour and a half. It repeats a lot of the same points over and over again. But I think it's, it's a pretty interesting, if grim, watch. That's Epstein's shadow, Ghislaine Maxwell. Now, we have a competition this week, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which we gave rave reviews to on this show, which you may know stars Daniel Kaluuya. And he won an Oscar for his role as Fred Hampton this year, who was the leader of the Chicago chapter of Black Panthers back in the 60s. And the movie tells his story, but also of a character called William O'Neill, who was an FBI informant. It's a great movie. To celebrate the release of it on DVD, we have five copies of Judas and the Black Messiah to give away. If you'd like to be in with a chance of winning, simply text the word Judas, said I'd choose Judas instead of Messiah, it's harder to spell. Text the word Judas, followed by your name to 53106. If you're listening on podcast, you can email us, screentime at newstalk.com. Five copies of Judas and the Black Messiah to give away. And Anne-Marie Kane will pick a winner later in the week. Now, let's take a walk down Fear Street. Another shady side tragedy. Fits the narrative, right? Sarah Fear's back. Christ, not you too. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun? Guys, I think there's someone in the woods. We're together for one night and dead people are trying to kill us. Maybe we are doomed. Yes, that is a clip of Fear Street, which is a trilogy of movies which is beginning to land on Netflix this week. There's going to be three movies, Fear Street Part 1, 1994, Fear Street Part 2, 1978, and Fear Street Part 3, 1666, I should say. Now, these are all based on the novels of R.L. Stein. It was a whole series of books set in this town called Shadyside. And they're creepy, kind of late teenage horror stories, which were wildly popular. I'd never read them or anything like that. But Netflix have turned them into 
a trilogy of movies that are going to be released every Friday, which is kind of a new way of doing things. This Friday, July 2nd, next Friday, July 9th, and obviously the following Friday, July 16th. And they begin the first one. I don't really want to talk about the other ones because they're slightly embargoed. But the first one, 1994, begins in Shadyside where a group of teenagers start experiencing strange horror moments where cruel people show up. They're kind of slasher movies and this town is haunted by possibly the spirit of a dead witch or possible witch from the past. They're kind of slashery slash if you'll pardon the pun, Scream, those movies, they're a bit like that. They're very stylized. We were talking a couple of weeks ago how I didn't find a lot of horror movies that horrifying. There are some genuine scares in these that I enjoyed a lot. I've watched all three of them. The first one, which is out on the 2nd of July, that's this Friday, is very good. And if you're, you know, it's not to do the disservice. It reminded me a bit of Buffy and the Vampire Slayer and maybe a touch of Scream. And they're very stylized, great music in them. They're also quite, gory. Uh, The books are teen, but I don't know if the movies are necessarily. Depends on your teens, I guess, but they are orated. It's it's full-on blood and guts at times. And they're directed by a woman called Lee Janiak, and I put the emphasis on woman because I wrongly assumed it was a man because it was a horror movie. So my uh, latent or manifest sexism led me to believe that it was a man. But Lee is very much a woman. And I spoke to her about that. And of course, making Fear Street earlier in the week. I was wondering, you know, to take on such a mammoth task of turning this world into, you know, movies and doing three of them back to back. You must really love these books. And I'm wondering what it is about them that made you want to do this in the first place. Not that you shouldn't have, but. Um, I had read the books when I was a teenager, um, kind of in the mid 90s. And so I grew up loving them. And then, to be honest, I didn't think about them for a good, I don't know how many years in between. And um, back in 2017, my producers approached me. They said they were turning the books into a series of movies. And I was super excited because I had been um, a fan for so long. I don't know. I think the thing that I love about the books more than anything is, yes, they're horror, they're bloody. There's like an edge of kind of like sex and, you know, things Mm. that are subversive, but they're also really fun. And to Mm. me, that was kind of the exciting thing about bringing the books to the screen, which was like being able to preserve that and kind of, I think horror in the past few years has been, it's different. It hasn't been as, as traditionally fun as like the old slasher movies. So I was excited about those. Yeah, and what what kind of movies like were you trying to ape, or, or not that this is like anything else? But what horror movies are fun to you? Yeah, I think that when I think back, the 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 pinnacle of kind of fun horror to me is Scream. I don't mm-hmm. think that it gets any better than that. Um, so <laughs> the lucky thing about making these movies was obviously I had the opportunity to be in three different time periods. So for the '90s, I could look to movies like. Scream, I know what you did last summer, the faculty. And then when we went into the 70s, I could kind of look back at the more like kind of traditional, like first wave of slasher. So Halloween, yeah. Texas Chainsaw, Nightmare, things like that. Yeah, the, they're incredibly stylized. They, they have their own kind of vibe to them. All three of them, even though they're in different time sets, which is fantastic. And there's a real, like, you know, you know the three of them are related and you know this person who made them, whoever he or she is, has their own, cinematic language were you really keen to kind of create a world almost 
Totally. And, and it was challenging. It was challenging and also super kind of, it's kind of a filmmaker's dream. Usually mm. you have a little bit of space in between. So doing it all at once was crazy, but it was, it was amazing to be able to kind of spend time with my DP and my production designer and figure out like, how are we going to give each of these their own personality, their own, their own language, their own color space, everything. So yeah, I'm glad that you noticed. Thank you. Yeah, I was paying close attention. <laughs> and also on that, I love the kind of trope that baddies or bad guys are showing up when there's just out of this corner of the eye, this shadow moves. Yeah. And not that I was terrified, but I was I was jumping. Was yeah. that when you make a horror movie, do you kind of think I gotta get this kind of thing that's gonna herald <gasps> we're not in Kansas anymore? Totally. It's all about, I kind of think, finding those moments where you can just have a little hint of the unnerving, a little hint of like, there's that person in the corner or there's a shadow mm. or there's a wipe or, or whatever. I think that to me is the scariest of this uncertainty of what could be lurking in the shadows. And I think that's really effective when you're sitting on your couch or if you're in the theater or wherever you are. Yeah. You know, the, certainly in the first one, the, you know, the protagonist's then being gay is, is, is part of it. And, you know, that's almost, no one notices it so much now anymore. I yeah. was only the last two weeks we were reviewing movies on our show with, uh, you know, gay couples at the center. And it's not that it's passe or anything, but it's just, we don't pay as much attention as we used yeah. to. But yet, like this was 1990s. If they had been made in the 90s, it would have been a lot harder. You probably wouldn't even have been made. Were you aware of that, that you were setting this in a time when it wasn't pro-LGBT? Uh, completely. I think that was one of the most appealing things about making the movies was that across the board, whether or not it was queer characters or if it was a Black protagonist or what it, whatever mm. kind of it was, these are obviously the world of people in the 90s or people in the 70s was as kind of, diverse and and uh as it is now but it wasn't represented in television or movies yeah. it just wasn't yeah. a thing so be to be able to kind of give those characters an opportunity to not only live past 15 minutes but also kind of have a full arc and full yeah. kind of hero thing was was very important yeah and you know this is interesting i think it's the first time in netflix's history or whatever a movie dropping each week is this very exciting for you that i don't know you're gonna wake up every friday morning and wonder what the world taught kind of <laughs> yeah it is very exciting it's really crazy but i think that it's amazing and um i'm excited that netflix kind of you know we didn't we were we we're kind of we always knew they were going to be released in close succession they were crafted mm. to be made like that and it was exciting kind of working with netflix to figure out what is the right time that you still feel like it's it's this like fun, like, oop, it's Friday again, it's time for Fear Street. So I, yeah. think, I think it's really exciting. It'll also be nerve wracking, but I think it's- Yeah, it's funny as you say though, it's kind of old fashioned yet incredibly modern. You know, it's yeah. on a streaming service, we had it's dropping every Friday yeah, or still, Friday yeah, afternoon. Then finally, and you know, please don't hate me for this, but when I got word about this interview last week, I saw your name and unfortunately there are many things I have to watch. So I only got around to watching, but I watched them all last week, but I assumed you were a man right so my apologies right and which is ridiculous and it's not and I'm a terrible speller as well so I just thought yeah so it is it unusual that that women make horror movies and I, I'm embarrassed even asking you that but are you aware <laughs> that someone like me found it odd that it was a woman yeah. doing it? because of course I shouldn't but I'm wondering like do you think it's getting easier you know for women to make horror it certainly should be but yeah, I do actually. I think that, you know, it's not, it's it's unfortunate, but it's not strange that I think people still think that default is man. Mm. I think they think that for director across the board. But I think that in the past, 
like, I mean, certainly since I've been lucky enough to work as a director, um, so like the past 10 years, I would say, mm -hmm. it's definitely changing. And, and there are a lot more women in genre, in horror, in action, um, in sci-fi. And I think that that's kind of the key to change. It's like, yeah. we're, we're telling these different stories with a different type of gaze. And frankly, like young girls get to see that and say, oh, that is a job that I can do, which is something that I didn't quite understand until I was a lot older, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, it sounds like a strange way to end an interview, but I'm awfully glad you're a woman. <laughs> and uh, the films are great, so the best of luck with them. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Lee Janiak there, the director of Fear Street. And the first of those three movies is now on Netflix. Fear Street Part 1, 1994. And my thanks to Lee. Up next, me and Mark Ryle go another round. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases, one of which is the winner of this year's Best Foreign Language Movie at the Oscars, Another Round, and also a very different movie called French Exit, starring Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm delighted to be joined now by Mark Ryle, our resident movie critic. Mark, how are you? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. I'm good for one of the movies I watched this week, and I'm definitely bad for another one of the movies I watched well, this week. At least they're both a little bit more sophisticated than last week. This is a sort of a velvet smoking jacket and <laughs> monogrammed slippers week. I guess it is. I guess that's a good way of putting it. We are referring to Fast and Furious 9, which... Uh, we didn't enjoy, Mark certainly didn't. But anyway, to Pastures New, another round. Uh, Thomas Vinterberg, who's mm -hmm. the maker of one of my favourite movies ever, called Festin. I really like this, but before we get to what I thought of it, tell me what it's about for our listeners. It is about four middle-aged teachers who seem to be having a collective midlife crisis. Mads Mikkelsen is a history teacher called Martin, and he is sleepwalking through his classes and he is all but invisible to his wife and his two teenage kids. Um, then at a birthday dinner, the, the, these four friends, they start discussing the Norwegian philosopher Finn Skarderud, as you do. Yeah, I think technically he's a psychologist, but anyway, you know, that's is how split he? hairs, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> I would. <laughs> uh, the, the, the psychologist, Finn Skarderud, thanks for uh, correcting me, um, and specifically his theory that um, our natural blood alcohol level is too low and we would all be far better off and more confident and engaged if we remained in a constant state of slight drunkenness. So they, they try to, you know, do this experiment. And that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, and it starts off, I suppose, with funny consequences. Then it gets a bit mm. more serious, as you might imagine, because they start to drink a bit more. And then it goes somewhere else, which might be slightly unexpected. But mm. on the whole, I thought this was a great film. I really did. What did you think of it? I think we're going to disagree. We, I, really? We, we, yeah, I, I've, seen, I've seen this twice. I think we've both seen this yeah, twice. Yeah, we have, now. because it was and, meant to be released oh, way back when. October last yeah. year, um, but in, in fairness, now I did enjoy it much more. Sorry, I'm just um, I'm just having a gin and tonic here as you're talking because I'm so in the spirit of it. Keep talking. Well, about I, I'm three deep. I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy it a lot more on the second viewing, which is like to be fair. Now I don't really get the chance to do that a lot, um, but I, I, you know, I did enjoy it more the second time. My my main problem with another round is I don't think Vinterberg he doesn't seem to have a point. Um, and I found it to be very unfocused because, first of all, drinking is brilliant. 
But then actually on second thoughts, no, it's really bad. However, on third thoughts, it's fantastic. And another round is all over the map and Vinterberg shifts gears a lot, which you have already said and that you enjoyed it. Now, I find the second act, which is a lot lighter and comedic in tone than you would probably expect given the subject matter. I found that to be oddly unsettling probably for that very reason that it was you know it's not it's not really something that should be dealt with in in a light manner um but then so that didn't sit well with me and then the third act shifts again into something a lot more serious and dramatic and then that's fine but by the time um Mads Mikkelsen does his La La Land bit at the end we've we've shifted again and um it just it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And Vinterberg kind of loses me. Disco. Mm. Uh, he certainly didn't lose me. I'll tell you why. Because oddly enough, I corrected you saying that guy is actually a psychologist. And the reason why I know that is, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you again, I have a master's in philosophy. What would be the point to bringing that up? But he actually became a correspondent of sorts uh, on the movie. And he said that it wasn't quite what he said, that he they, they changed his thinking a bit. But let's not argue about that. But what I liked about it was that I thought it was a very clever kind of philosophical study of drunkenness uh, mm-hmm. and the relationship a person can have with alcohol and that, you know, sure, if you got slightly sozzled all day, it would improve your life possibly up to a point. But obviously, you know, the rent man would eventually come calling. What I also loved about it was I thought Mad Mickelson and his pals, they do that middle age malaise really, really well. I, I love mm-hmm. the way that happened. And I also loved the way you were talking about the the constant gear shifts, I was talking to someone else about this earlier in the week and, you know, you and I watch a lot of movies and, you know, there's a beginning, middle and end to most movies and you can see them coming a mile away. Whereas with this, you couldn't. And it went in kind of strange places. Plus the humor around there, you know, I think it's probably a man's movie in that way, but their male friendship, I really liked. And I also, you know, I liked, some of the funny stuff that happened when they were half cut, you know? So mm-hmm. it, it worked for me almost in its entirety. And I thought, Matt, as I said, Matt Mickelson was great. I yeah. thought it was a career high, you know? So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a masculinity in, in crisis movie. Yeah. There, there is, there is. A and I've been having that crisis for 20 years plus now. So, you know, it's, I'm always <laughs> happy to see a movie about it. There is a beginning, a middle and an end, but not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I know what you what you were saying about Scarderud kind of changing what he said. They Vinterberg spends a lot of time trying to establish the the the, the scientific parameters of this experiment that the 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 group is testing, mm. and then it and then it kind of changes, and then it just gets dumped completely. Um, but um, I think for a bunch of you know on paper smart guys, they are really really dumb, and I think this is a it's a, it's a terrible idea, no matter what. Um. It's just a really bad idea what they're trying to do. Absolutely. Of course it's a bad idea. And the idea that you could live your life that way, you know, which unfortunately some tragic people do, not for very philosophical reasons. No, 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 no. But just because the the premise of the experiment is a bad idea, I don't think it makes it a bad movie. Uh, Yeah. Discuss. it kind of moves very quickly. I mean, yeah, when, when Mads Mikkelsen starts doing it, you know, his classes turn into, I suppose, Dead Poet Society if, yeah. if Robin Williams was half cut. But um, things go pretty quickly from, you know, drinking pricey Russian vodka and caviar and listening to Tchaikovsky on yeah. 
very expensive looking turntables to you know running around town with their shirts off and wetting the bed i know and there's a hilarious scene where one of them mistakes a baby monitor for a breathalyzer oh. yeah i know i mean i, okay, I was I about to say we've all been there but of course we haven't <laughs> i really hope not um I, I don't know i just didn't i really i loved i loved the performances was the thing that i enjoyed about it the second time i watched it i would watch Lads Mickelson in anything. He's one of those mm. actors who he manages to be fascinating even when he's not doing anything. Yeah, he can absolutely. Be sitting at a table with with three other people speaking and you can't take your eyes off of him. I know. It's a remarkable quality. Like you watch him listening to other people. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's really exactly. it's brilliant. Uh, you see, I see everything you're describing sounds to me like a, a four star movie, you know? And again, right. I you know, I, it's one of those movies where it's in subtitles and five minutes in you forgot you're reading the screen which i always think is a great sign of a movie that happens to be not in your native language you know sure yeah 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 no i mean no no i mean it's not it's not bad i just it didn't it didn't hit me right no you liked it more than fast and furious nine though right i think i liked take your pick (laughs) (laughs) so what would you say stars wise um i'm gonna give it three there are Mm -hmm. some great performances um, but I have to say, I just I just thought that Vinterberg didn't have a point. Uh, okay. Well, I thought he had a, a, a great point, uh, even if the logic of the experiment was somewhat flawed. So I'm going to give it a four because okay. I really enjoyed it. But look, you know, we, we rarely agree. So that's fine. That what That's what makes us sizzle. We like crossed follow. wires on a summer's night, Mark. I've turned okay. it into a country song, haven't I? Okay, yeah. so that is another round. Available in cinemas from this Friday, the 2nd of July. Mark gives it a three. I give it a four. Can't really play you a clip because it is in Danish. So uh, I'd be fine with that, but Mark would struggle knowing what was going on. So, Mark, we move <laughs> next to I, a, a movie which I suppose could seem like a foreign language movie, but it isn't. It's very much in English. French Exit. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, it it kind of we might we might agree more on this one. I think we will. I think it aims for it aims for quirky, but it lands on annoying. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is Francis Price, who is an obscenely wealthy Manhattan widow who has squandered all of her money. So I suppose she's no longer obscenely rich now; she's just obscene. And for years, Francis has ignored all of the advice of her accountant, and she's kept her head in the sand. Uh, he says to her, what did you think was going to happen? And she says, well, I planned on dying before the money ran out. I didn't. So here we are. Um, and with nowhere left to go, her friend offers Francis her apartment in France. So she she liquidates what's left of her assets and takes off to Paris with her son, her spoiled son, who's played by Lucas Hedges, where she plans to blow what's left and then possibly uh, kill herself. Yes. Uh, and they head across on the Atlantic on a boat and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, on paper, this could Mm. be great, uh, but in practice, it's far from great, right? It's not, no. Um, It is a pleasure to have uh, Pfeiffer getting her teeth into an interesting lead role again. She has taken a couple of... She's been absent a lot. She's taken a couple of career breaks, and Mm. while she's appeared in a few supporting roles and stuff like... uh, uh, murder on the orient express and she was in darren aronofsky's mother as well she hasn't really done anything significant for for over a decade now so it's nice to see her leading a movie again and her character francis is by far the most i think successful element of french exit um she's an interesting character she's nasty she's spiteful she's selfish 
all of those qualities that we love to watch. But I think every other moving part of the movie falls so far behind what she's doing. It really is quite embarrassing. I completely agree with you. Uh, she's chews up the scenery. She's great. Uh, yeah. She plays that kind of, you know, almost femme fatale, rich socialite really well. Lucas Hedges is fine in it. He's a good actor. He's a mm. good, good, you know, there's yeah. something very watchable about him. But I'll tell you, Mark, I'm not sure if I've ever told you this before and the many things I've told you. There's one thing I can't stand nearly more than most things in art and in life is pretentiousness. And this was so pretentious, it really got on my wick. Because what they're trying to do is make a Wes Anderson movie or make a kind of Woody Allen movie of sorts. And they go across the Atlantic and they're on this boat, which is almost magic realist. But there's no plot and there's no real characterization to it. And it was like irritatingly trying to be quirky and cool while forgetting that, you know, in order to be quirky and cool, there still has to be a foundation there of a story, you know, yeah. to talk what we were talking about before, beginning, middle and end. And, and this mm-hmm. had none of it. And like, honestly, it was bad to the point of, you know, I turned to my wife and said in the middle of it, this is really bad. I'm really surprised by this. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. There is a plot. It's just the problem is that it's, it's, it's barely worth talking about. Um, the the Wes Anderson comparison, I think what is I think it it's it, the the what's there is 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 that it's very um stylized and the characters are, are overly mannered. But what is missing, what you get with Wes Anderson is is the compassion and the kindness in his characters. There's none of that. So um I think the the one comparison I would agree with is that like a Wes Anderson movie this seems to have taken place at any point in the last 30 years you couldn't really say oh it's from it's this year or you know it was from 1996 or whatever and I did I think the worst thing I can say about it is that I found myself thinking a lot about late period Woody Allen Mm. um, in the sense that you are not only does it not make much sense? But you're watching it thinking nobody talks like this and nobody would do these things. Mm. Um, I think if you're not on board already with this, by the time the cat starts talking, I think that's probably going to tip you over the edge. Yeah, the cat with the possibly dead husband inside, it was just, yeah, yeah that that might have been actually interestingly the point where i wanted to if you'll pardon the pun jump overboard that really Indeed, yeah. did my head in as well yeah and and your your point about woody allen is well made because some of those you know later woody allen movies like uh scoop and things like that where it's just like what's going on here is actually a lot like that in some ways you know? midnight in paris and, and stuff like that you know you just think anyway let's let's you know I, I think we've agreed to leave Woody Allen for a long time, possibly ever, privately. Anyway, let's not get into that now. Okay, so French Exit, apparently based on a book uh, by Patrick DeWitt, if I'm not mistaken, which is meant to be quite good, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, and he actually, he actually wrote the screenplay. Yeah, so go figure. Uh, go figure, indeed, yeah. What would you say stars-wise? Um, I'm going to give it two, because I think Pfeiffer is great, but the movie certainly is not. Here's something I haven't done in a very long time. I'm going to give it a one because it was mm. so irritated by it. And the only thing saving it was uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And usually yeah. I'd be generous and give it a two on the base of her, but I was so annoyed by everything else in it that I just can't. Yeah. So let's, go figure, but don't go see this in the cinema would be my let's recommendation. Move on. Yeah, let's move on. And we can't though, because that's the new releases for this week. 
Well, the, I'm certainly the, I'm sure there'll be more. Yeah. No, hopefully next week, but maybe you should just go now and I'll say thanks. Uh, I'm going to go. Bye-bye. Bye. Mark Ryle and I there reviewing the very poor French exit, but what I thought was wonderful, Another Round by Thomas Vinterberg. Both movies are now in your local cinema. Never get tired of saying that after the year we've had. Up next, Nora Casey on her favourite movie. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted now to be joined by broadcaster, businesswoman, magazine mogul, you run out of ways to describe her, Nora Casey, how Obviously are you? I'm very old now that you've just said all those things, I feel ancient. I'm good though. You've lived a busy life. Listen, you texted me, I think it was this morning, about your favourite movie and I just, oh that's wonderful, because it just always puts a smile on my face. I have haven't seen it in a while, but it's a delightful film. Will you tell our listeners what you've opted for? Mrs. Doubtfire. I think I've either lost all my kind of, you know, kudos or uh, as a dragon now by saying that. But I have to say, uh, I think it's the film I've watched more than any other film. Would you just remind people what, what happens in it? I guess, you know, you could say it's Robin Williams, of course, and I love anything with Robin Williams in it. He was just a magnificent character. And uh, he plays the role of um, this guy, Daniel, who is like an out-of-work cartoon voiceover actor. Um, yeah. he, he obviously, all the things that his wife, Miranda, played by Sally Field, loved when she met him, as in he was a bit chaotic and energetic and spontaneous and quirky, were all the things that irritated the hell out of her when they had three children and he was still playing the Egypt and, you know, doing a live zoo, I think, for one of the, the son's birthday party. So eventually they, they split up and he does really badly in the custody battle. It has, for me, it has sort of subtle of just what happens in life, nothing yeah. big or dramatic. You know, he's not trying to take over a country or, you know, start World War Three or discover a new planet. It's just the, you know, the horrible bits of life where, you know, sometimes relationships break up and there are a lot of children who go through that. So in the custody battle, there's kind of, I think, a little undercurrent of, oh, he's a failed dad because he couldn't get work that paid enough. And Mm. uh, he ends up having to take part time work during that. And he's only allowed to see his children uh, once a week, I think it was on Saturday, and um, and then there's a little bit of you know criticism of the careerist wife, you know Sally Field playing Miranda, and all focused on her career and not on the family. It, nonetheless, he comes up with an ingenious plan, typical Robin Williams style, because he's great at you know at making up characters and uses voices. So he he becomes Mrs. Doubtfire, this kind of larger than life Scottish nanny, um, mm. and he has an incredible first name to this. Coming up to talking to you now, I was trying to remember, but it was something like Euphigenia, something outrageous, isn't it? And of course, he becomes this nanny that everybody would want. You know, he's firm and he's fun and he's fabulous and he can't help but the veil side is coming out every now and again. He goes a little bit uh, rambunctious and <laughs> sort of goes a little bit crazy playing soccer. And But the, the kids clearly love him and he knows all the buttons to press with his um, with his wife. Uh, because he knows her likes and dislikes. So he finds himself obviously having full access to the children, I think, seeing life from another side. Um, yeah. So it's very, very funny, which I think sometimes very painful things. And Robin Williams does a lot of these painful things where he tackles really difficult issues, just life issues, but does it with a lot of banter and a lot of funniness. I mean, I, I, 
to this day that there's a kind of no villain in this which i love yeah. no villain in the movie um i think all my nieces and nephews are going to be cheering from the rafters that i've chosen them because they watched <laughs> it we had a dvd copy which is almost worn out when they watched it fifty thousand times it was passed on to the next generation and then finally got to me and to dara and i think we have it in the house there's hardly a thread left in it you know? yeah um but i think the 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 funniest now I know everyone talks about that moment when he's in the restaurant and he has to be Mrs. Doubtfire and Daniel and he's constantly in this revolving door of running in and out to the toilet and changing. But I think the funniest one for me is not just everyone will say it's when his boobs go on fire and he's like <laughs> We've all been men, there. That menopause a line of, you know, I'm a woman now, I'm getting hot flushes. <laughs> but it's the one where the, the perfect foil to him in the whole movie is this sort of po-faced humorless character called Anne who is his overseer kind of appointed by the courts and she's like the worst possible strict not a funny bone in her body so she turns up unannounced and he's he's in character as Mrs. Doubtfire but his mask um, is run over by a truck in the street I don't know if you remember this uh, mm-hmm. John but he's like he's no mask on she wants a cup of tea he's in the kitchen he's racing around thinking what am I going to do what am I going to do looks out the window where the mask has dropped on the road and sees this huge truck with the tires just going straight over the mask and she's on her way towards the kitchen because she can hear him talking away to himself and using expletives and he opens the door of the fridge and there's this huge cream cake and she just she's just at the door of the kitchen just about you know walks through when he stuffs his face into the cream cake and pretends it's his nighttime beauty ritual to wear this sorry meringue face um <laughs> and so people after it said that you know two-thirds of that was him ad living like you know the director mm. at the time said he used to stand stark still not knowing what was coming out of his house but unknown to everyone else the the lights in the studio was melting this thing on the, his face and it kept dropping into her tea <laughs> I think it's I can't even when we're coming up to that scene I start laughing before yeah. it even happens though. well I think you really put your finger on it in that the best Robin Williams movies of course they're very funny but when he's at his best there's loads of heart in them and there's yeah. loads of human stuff in them so that is uh, brilliantly evoked I have to say and I was watching a couple of clips beforehand and it is a, a beautiful choice and clearly one that's meant a lot to you over the years so I do appreciate yeah. the effort I, I think uh, to be honest, John, when you think of Ireland, I was living away from home at the time. I'd left my first husband, so I was quite away from the family. And like most families, some of my siblings' marriages didn't last. So, you know, there's always, and my sister passed away, so there's always been this like pain of maybe children going through families that weren't normal. Let's just put it that mm-hmm. way. You know, Ireland hadn't woken up to the divorce referendum and, you know... There was a, a sort of a stigma associated. And what I really liked about the film, firstly, the kids adored it. It laughed like drains every time they watched <laughs> it. But he showed this very honest pain, you know, in, in amongst all his clownish acts yeah. and everything. There was a lot of pain. And I liked the fact that in the end, they didn't get back together because mm. that schmaltzy stuff doesn't happen in real life. Sometimes, you know, yeah. couples just don't end up staying together. They They agree that they can actually be great parents, but not necessarily force themselves on each other. Pierce Brosnan, of course, plays the new bow in Miranda's life and he's not even villainized, which is yeah. nice. You know, yeah. it's, it's kind of a perfectly nice way of portraying something that's very, very difficult for kids, very difficult for a couple, partners, parents, um, and at the same time deals with it, I think, just re- in a really nice way. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't have 
I'd still watch it now and laugh, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that's, that's a testament to a great film. So thank you for that. Listen, before I was due to talk to you, I was just thinking, you know, about when you started one of your many careers in Harmonia Publishing and all that. And, you know, you're now seeing rightly or wrongly, rightly, of course, but, you know, as a trailblazer, like when you started in business, you know, it was the early nineties around then there, it's a shame to say, but there were very few women who were CEOs and entrepreneurs. It was, it was a male dominated kind of space. Did you have a sense at the time? Did you feel that at the time that you had to shout louder or were you just busy being an entrepreneur that you only reflect on that stuff after the fact? It's just, it's a, almost a bit of all of those things. You have to remember my first um, entry into life was as a nurse Yeah. at 17. And I was five years in Scotland, in Loch Lomond, and then in Edinburgh. And I didn't set out in life to make millions. I no, I know. I make a difference. So I always say that to people like, you know, just remember where I came from. It's a really hard message to give. But to be honest, my experience with my first husband just completely changed my whole life. And you know, somebody asked me recently, what was the day that changed your life? And they always expected me to say when Richard died, but actually it was the day I walked away from him because given that I was nine years there in a violent relationship and, you know, afterwards people say, How, look, there's no, I've, I've written about it and spoken about it enough not to go through it, but I was pretty kind of destitute. I had, mm-hmm. you know, no money. I was, um, you know, I was 31. I drove away from that house in my little car in a small bag and nothing else, absolutely nothing else. I was, you know, sleeping on people's sofas. I stayed in um, the uh, a little hotel in um, Heathrow. It was the cheapest I could find. Um, and I and I think while I drove away, I told my mum, and I was talking to my sister, and uh, she knew just a few days beforehand I told her what was happening. I was quite away from life. I was in near Wimbledon in London. And I just kept saying to myself, it's never going to happen to you again. Don't let this happen to you again. You have to stand on your own two feet, be financially independent, do the things that you need to do in your life, but don't ever be that exposed, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and from that, I changed the whole course of my life from being, I think, somebody who could have been quite happy going into academia. I was studying for my MPhil, had transferred to a PhD at the University of Wales. I'd already spent most of my 20s studying. I did my postgrad in journalism in Ealing. Uh, I did TV. Um, it's, I was constantly like embracing the idea of, uh, I, was, I was actually publishing peer-reviewed journals with the British Medical Journal. So I was embracing an academic life, really, and then just completely changed course. And so I wouldn't have met Richard, of course, and I wouldn't have had my lovely Dara, and I wouldn't have um, gone on to study you know, business management and things like that. I was a pretty terrible boss, by the way. <laughs> Somebody asked me recently, what's the worst boss you've ever encountered? I said, myself, I was just the worst. <laughs> but I took over as a boss, so I wanted to be everybody's friend and I wouldn't make a decision. They used to say the the, the CEO's indecision is final or something like that about me. Right. Um, but I took myself to Ashridge Management College for, um, I did two years, but it was kind of, you'd, you were locked in for three weeks and then out for two months. So I was working all the way through in fact doing a live project um with companies in the us and in the uk at the time as part of the two-year program on strategic management so i kind of i'd say for one thing i've been far more focused on education than i have ever had on um business 
acumen or turnover or profits. I've never taken a profit out of any of my businesses. They all went into other things. Um, some of them went into just have investments in other people's businesses. Some of them went to worthy causes that meant a lot to me. And so money, I, you know, it just doesn't drive me. I have no interest in, of course, I want to live okay. <laughs> yeah. But I don't have any big hobbies. <laughs> I have no interest in anything too fancy or huge. There's just me and Dara in a two-bed house, you know. Well, that's a nice image. Her favourite movie is The Wonderful Mrs. Doubtfire. She is a renaissance woman. I don't need to give you all her titles again. Nora Casey, thank you very much. Thanks, John. For the past 15 years, I have worked for the Smythe family of Elborn, England. That's Smythe, not Smith, dear. And for them, I did house cleaning, cooking, and took care of their four glorious children. Oh, I grew quite attached to them after 15 years, but they grew up as children tend to do. Oh, but listen to me, I am going on when you should be telling me about your little ones. Well, I have two girls. Oh, two precious gems, no doubt the jewel of your eye. And one boy. Oh, the little prince, how wonderful. I must tell you, there would be a little light cooking required. Oh, I don't mind that, dear. I'd love some heavy cooking. But I do have one rule. They'll only eat good, nutritious food with me. And if there's any dispute about that, it's either good, wholesome food or empty tummies. That's my rule. I hope it's not too harsh for you, dear. No. Um, would you mind coming on an interview, say, Monday night at 7.30? Oh, I'd love to, dear. Wonderful. I'm at 2640 Steiner Street. Steiner. Oh, how lovely. Could you tell me your name? My name? I thought I gave it to you, dear. No. Oh. Doubtfire. I beg your pardon? Doubtfire, dear? Mrs. Doubtfire. Ah, yes, Robin Williams there. I think that's the first time we hear Mrs. Doubtfire in the movie. What a treasure he was. And what a lovely lady Nora Casey is too. My thanks to her. That is it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. You can get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Fardy. Or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I mentioned at the top of the show we're giving away five copies of Judas and the Black Messiah. If you want to win, simply text us 53106. Text the word Judas, followed by your name, and Anne-Marie Kane will pick a winner. If you're listening on podcast, feel free to email screentime at newstalk.com. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on News Talk although it was on the radio this Saturday at 9pm because of the Lions coverage. Have a good week, stay safe and I'll talk to you all next week.